Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Two years ago, life got harder for just about everyone. As schools closed, millions of parents were left to figure out what to do with their kids, many of whom relied on school for meals as well as education. As was the case with housing, healthcare, broadband access, and more, COVID put a spotlight on crises that have long existed in the United States, including the caregiving crisis. When the world essentially shut down, parents were stuck trying to solve a problem without a clear solution. The result? Many women called it quits from their nine to five to take over caregiving full time. According to the Center for Caregiving Inclusion, there are 48 million unpaid caregivers in the US. Three out of four are women. Parenthood and caregiving are universal issues, but the U.S. stands out for its lack of support for families. One example, the amount we spend on what's called early care and education, which is essentially daycare and preschool. In a poll of 38 countries, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development found that the average amount of public spending per year per kid on this kind of care was a little over $14,000. The U.S. government spends an average of just 500. Lawmakers and activists across the country have been calling for reform to the care economy for decades. The pandemic gave new urgency to this fight. So when Biden took office in January of 2021, Democrats were hopeful that something could finally be done. But things didn't go as planned. In December of last year, Senator Joe Manchin said he wouldn't vote for the Build Back Better Act. That bill would have expanded the child tax credit and Medicaid and guaranteed paid family leave and universal pre-K. Without his support, the bill had no hope of passing the Senate. It was a devastating blow to American families. Now, the Democratic-led House is trying to pass individual legislation to preserve some of the most important parts of the bill. Welcome back to Women Belong in the House. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan. This season on Women Belong in the House, we're talking to the representatives who are in this fight. We'll dig into what the care economy means, how these policies could affect families and the country as a whole. We'll talk about how the push for these policies has changed over time and what could happen next. Throughout it all, we'll be getting some help from another Wonder Media Network show, White Picket Fence. Last season, White Picket Fence dove into the past and present of the caregiving crisis. So each episode, I'll be joined by its host, Julie Kohler. Hi. Hi. (laughs) Julie is a family sociologist who studies the policies that help families thrive. She'll help us unpack these specific issues and their impacts. Plus, each Thursday, we'll be dropping an episode of White Picket Fence on this feed so you can go even deeper on the topic. First up we're talking about the child tax credit. 
So I think it's really important to note that we've had a child tax credit for a very long time. So when parents file their taxes every year, they have historically been able to claim $2,000 per child and get that money credited to them at the time that they get their tax refund. Now, what happened last year with the American Rescue Plan is that President Biden and congressional Democrats expanded that child tax credit, and they made it different in three different ways. So first of all, they increased the amount. It went from a $2,000 tax credit to a $3,000 tax credit. And for parents of children under the age of six, it went to $3,600 per child. Equally as important, the child tax credit became fully refundable. So this is kind of policy jargon for a concept that I think is really important to to understand, that previously um, low-income families wouldn't be eligible for this credit. And thanks to the American Rescue Plan, all families, no matter how much they earned or if they were unemployed and weren't earning an income, they all were eligible to receive this, this credit. And so the practical implications of this are that many millions of low-income families, millions of low-income children were suddenly eligible for a new kind of support. But the expanded child tax credit through the American Rescue Plan did one other thing that's really important and different, and that's that it started paying out this credit on a monthly basis. So whereas previously a parent could claim a credit and if they were getting a tax refund, they would get that in one lump sum. Starting last July, the expanded child tax credit started getting direct deposited into people's bank accounts every month. And so this has been a really revolutionary step in kind of how we think about supporting kids and families. All of that sounds amazing. And I imagine that folks who disagree with or or were against the expansion would talk about the fact that you're then giving a lot of of money away. Yeah, I mean, I think what we've heard from those who oppose the expanded tax credit is that they're worried that it will be a disincentive for parents to work. Now, we have some track record in seeing how this actually played out, and there was no evidence that that actually happened. Um, There was no sort of, you know, people opting out because they were now receiving this monthly stipend directly in their accounts. How has the conversation changed around the child tax credit over time? How has the program evolved? What happened is we saw we saw the United States basically become more like countries all over the world, Western industrialized countries all over the world, all of whom recognize that having children is incredibly ex- expensive and that it really that there's kind of a base level of support that government can provide to families to help ensure that our most vulnerable children have the resources they need. So this expansion was a way of kind of bringing the U.S. in line with much of the rest of the world and how we think about families and the base level of support that kids need. It also shows that at a baseline, it's valuable to the U.S. for people to have children. Like increasing the population is an important thing for the country and something to support. And to the degree that the tax credit has bipartisan support, I think it's largely been along those lines that we often hear a lot of conservative politicians wanting to support policies that help families have children, that makes child 
rearing, childbearing and child rearing more viable in the U.S., more affordable. And so um, to the extent that we are seeing any conservative support for the expanded child tax credit, it's usually based on that kind of reasoning. It feels these days difficult to find almost anything where there is bipartisan support. Is that something that we've really seen for the child tax credit and or how does the support compare with some of the other caregiving policies out there? Well, unfortunately, the American Rescue Plan, which was enacted a year ago, um, passed on a party line vote. And so it wasn't. It didn't receive bipartisan support. The child tax credit was one of the components of that bill. And more importantly, President Biden's Build Back Better Act, which he was trying to pass last fall, would have extended this expanded child tax credit. But it didn't pass. And so actually what happened is this program expired at the end of the year. Basically, families with children received six months of payments that were direct deposited into their bank accounts in many cases. And then come January, those payments stopped. So there we saw an incredible benefit to families during that six-month period. And now we've seen some real challenges for those families now that the payments have gone away. What if the families, what were sort of the tangible benefits and now the tangible um, problems that families are having when it was enacted or expanded versus now that it has expired? Yeah, well, first and most importantly, rates of child poverty in the United States were reduced by a third in just this six-month period. We, we now have a lot of research on what did parents spend this money on, and especially what did low-income families, low-income parents who hadn't been receiving the credit before, what did they spend the money on? Increasingly, they spent it on utility bills, on rent. It helped prevent them from having power shut off, from being evicted from their homes, and for a lot of families for being able to afford food so that they could adequately feed their children. We know that it reduced reliance on payday lending and kind of other exploitative uh, lending practices. Families were able to spend down balances on credit cards. And this is, I think, something that we really have to look at. We don't often talk about. But there's now research that showed that receiving these monthly stipends reduced stress for families. There are widespread benefits that go beyond just sort of the material comforts of life that these credits are able to affect. But the withdrawal of these payments, the, you know, the fact that families are no longer receiving these payments, we've seen real hardship for families in the wake of that ending. Um, child poverty rates have increased by 41 percent in January once the credits stopped appearing in, in families' bank accounts. So there's urgency to this issue to start to see some action. Is inflation affecting this conversation more than the broader caregiving conversation? I don't know if it's affecting it more. I mean, this is one of the really interesting things. If you, like, you know, survey the public, all of these policies are extraordinarily popular. They enjoy tremendous support from people of all political persuasions, Democrats, independents, Republicans. And so there's a divide between what people want, everyday Americans want, in terms of, you know, support for having families and raising children, and what elites in Washington are arguing about. And I think we see some of that disconnect in policy debates over the child tax credit, over child care, paid family leave, all the issues we'll be talking about. 
Something that we often talk about on Women Belong in the House is the fact that the demographics of Congress and the House, but Congress generally, have changed tremendously over time. And representation of women and other previously underrepresented groups has grown significantly, although there's still a lot of room left to go. How have the changing demographics affected the caregiving conversation broadly and perhaps the child tax credit in particular? I think we saw this play out in full force in the fall and are continuing to see this play out. We have such congressional leadership of so many women House members and senators that are just not willing to take no for an answer. They're not willing to let the conversation drop. They're not let, willing to let these policies just be, you know, kind of go away. In the last season of White Picket Fence, we looked at 50 years ago, which is really the last time that there was a serious effort to pass national child care in this country. And we have such a different Congress now. And I think it's, it's, it's been highlighted at many different points. You know, at some point during the negotiations over the Build Back Better Act, paid leave was cut from the bill. And I so remember that, you know, there were views of what was happening on the Senate floor the evening that that was announced. And Senator Kirsten Gillibrand and Senator Patty Murray, they actually like went up and cornered Senator Joe Manchin on the floor of the Senate and were talking to him about the importance of paid leave. And I just think like we would not have had that kind of leadership on these issues if we didn't have the diversity of representation that we're starting to make cracks in and we're starting to make gains on. We'll pick back up with Julie at the end of the episode. But first, I wanted to get a sense of the politics behind the child tax credit. So I spoke with Representative Rosa DeLauro from Connecticut's 3rd Congressional District. Representative DeLauro was first elected to Congress in 1990. She currently chairs the House Appropriations Committee, as well as the Labor, Health and Human Services, and Education Appropriations Subcommittees. As such, she plays a pivotal role in allocating our nation's budget. Representative DeLauro has been working to expand the child tax credit for 18 years. Now that she successfully did so for six months, she's not exactly going to let the expanded credit expire quietly. Here's Representative DeLauro. The press always asks me this question. Congresswoman DeLauro, what motivates you to vote the way you do, to take up the issues that you do? And it's not the 30-some-odd years that I've spent in the House of Representatives, but rather it is growing up in an Italian Catholic uh, household, which is where I learned my values. And I I come from a blue-collar family who always struggled uh, financially. So when I take up issues that have to do uh, with with workers and working families and uh, and collective bargaining and unions, you know, it's not something I learned in the Congress. I learned that in my home. And, and our home was a place where my parents, while they served in elected public life, they did not write omnibus legislation. Uh, what they did was minister to their community. They were advocates. And this is the job that I have as an advocate you know, uh, for people. It's in the Congress. It's not at the local level, but it's the same. It is the same job. It's become particularly maybe more clear than ever over the course of COVID that parents are in need of that kind of 
advocacy. Um, you know, the pandemic really shined a spotlight on our broken childcare infrastructure, but the problem predates COVID. And so I'm curious, you've been in Congress for a long time. Why do you think human infrastructure, particularly when it comes to childcare, is overlooked or not something that has previously been talked about more among policymakers? I believe it's not really walking in people's shoes. People live paycheck to paycheck. Some worry about the next meal for their kids. Taxes are, are a big effort, which is why the child tax credit, which is one of the biggest middle class uh, you know, tax cuts that we've seen in, uh, in decades, is so critically uh, in, in, important. They're worried about health care, uh, and it needs to be affordable. We worry now, yes, women, over 2 million women were pushed out of the workforce. They didn't opt out because our child care system was collapsing which is why what we need to do is to deal with the resources that are necessary to have a strengthened child care industry at the same time as a strengthened airline industry or an automotive industry. Uh, they're equally important, and for so long we have not focused in these areas. I know that specifically you've been a champion of the child tax credit for many years. Why that specific care economy issue? Why is that something that you think is so important? At about age nine, um, I can recall very, very vividly, uh, my parents and I came home on a Friday evening, and we found all of our um, furniture, all of our belongings in the street. We had been evicted. It wasn't because my parents weren't working as hard as they could. My mother worked at the old sweatshops in the city of New Haven. Uh, you know, working piecework, you know, backbreaking work. My dad was an insurance salesman. They had struggled financially. They struggled all of their lives. And, and when you take a look at the success of the child tax credit and what people are, are spending the, um, the monthly allowance on, it's food, it's diapers, it's childcare, it's school supplies. They may be able to make a rent payment or a mortgage payment. Uh, uh, and the essentials of people being able to live their their lives. And that, that that's why it is so critically important. And that's what brought me to it, my own background, my own family background. When you first introduced the child tax credit legislation, or the expansion, rather, what was the conversation like then? And how has the conversation changed over time? I first introduced uh, an amendment in the Budget Committee in 2003. And uh, the Democrats were then in the minority, uh, so I knew I was going to lose. And, and that began my legislative journey on, on fighting for a child tax credit and understanding what it could mean in helping to, uh, to be a lifeline for middle-class families. Now, it's been an 18-year battle, if you will, but I just took it up every, every single opportunity uh, that I had to raise the issue of the child tax credit. Now, keeping in mind that the child tax credit, you know, has had bipartisan support. Newt Gingrich uh, uh, introduced a child tax credit. He backed off it. But there was a sense that there was a need for this kind of, of legislation. The child tax credit was introduced in the American Rescue Plan last January. In March, we voted on it. And at the time, people said we couldn't give out the checks on a monthly basis. But thanks to the IRS, they made it possible for those checks 
uh, to, to go out. And I have never seen in all of my years at the federal level a program, a federal program, that has had the kind of success and has meant the goals as they were laid out. I believe what we are going to witness is a very sharp increase in poverty if we do not extend it. People are already so concerned about what is going to happen to their families. You know, and, and one, one woman said, it's a cruel hoax. You've provided us with this opportunity to really help us to get on a track for economic security for our families, to give kids a fighting chance, and now you're going to just pull it away. It's, it's, it's staggering that, you know, the, the, the kinds of, of opportunities that can be afforded through the $3,600 or the $3,000 uh, that, that families uh, can take advantage of that has a direct correlation on children's learning abilities, their stability, their brain development, and what their futures will look like. It seems so rare to me to, as you said, to have clear evidence of a federal program doing what it says it can do so quickly. Given that all of these proof points exist that support what you're trying to do and what the child tax credit is trying to do, why do you think it still feels like an uphill battle to get it extended? Well, there, there are several things. There are uh, very few people, one or two people, who believe that it is not uh, cost-effective. The cost of child poverty in this country is over a trillion dollars every year. Columbia University uh, found that the expanded child tax credit returns $8 uh, for every dollar uh, spent. People who want to bring up the issue of inflation. Well, if you allow families to be able to afford diapers and childcare and all of these other things, you deal with the issue of inflation. Work requirements that people have talked about. Why do we demean low-income and poor families? Why do we not give them the respect? We all define ourselves by our jobs. They do as well. And most of these families are working. What about... What about uh, single moms or moms who stay home? Aren't they working? Shouldn't they be eligible for a child tax credit? The wealthiest who get tax breaks, the corporations who get tax breaks, no one says, what are, what are the requirements for you to work? It is because there's a lack of respect for people who work every single day, who live paycheck to paycheck. And it demeans who they are and their contribution to our society and to our country. I want to zoom out for a second to talk about um, the fact that the composition of the House now looks a lot different than when you were first elected to Congress and when you were first working on this issue and others. And also Senate. And I'm curious how the changing demographics of the House and Senate have played a role in how the conversation has changed or or has it? I'm I'm curious what your yeah. thoughts are. No, on no, that. It, it has. You, you, you are absolutely right. And I'm so glad you brought up this point. 
because that's why you, you never give up, because there is a changing nature of the institution. There is a new environment. When were we talking about a, a paid family and medical leave? We have not been, but we are now. So these issues, we're talking about a child tax credit. We're talking about equal pay for equal work. Men and women in the same job deserve the same pay. It wasn't that long ago when these issues were on uh, uh, supposedly the fringe. Now they are at the center of our public discourse. And that's because the demographics change, including uh, more women who are serving in the House of Representatives. You know, they bring a new perspective, a different perspective, uh, and it changes the nature of the agenda. Uh, and that is what is critical. So the environment changes, the population of the Congress changes, and you need to be there to seize the moment uh, to be able to move this legislation forward. Why did it take so long? There wasn't this sense of the necessity of this. Uh, and how it would affect families. And uh, I, I think the pandemic plays a role in uh, th this, uh, this effort because I think both in the health side and the economic side, what we found was the uh, unbelievable disparities, uh, both in health and in uh, economy. But as I said, over the years in working on it, we, we, we built you know, more people who were interested in it and who galvanized around it. And then the president, uh, as, a, as a candidate, had uh, espoused this. It was in his tax policies. He was all aboard, um, which was why um, when we moved to the American Rescue Plan and that weekend when I first heard that the child tax credit was, was not in, I just got on the phone with, uh, you know, with the the president's uh, advisors, you know, I, I called everyone. You know, you, you, you said to me that once we had the House, once we had the Senate, once we had the presidency, that we could move on this. Well, now is the moment. We have the House, we have the Senate, and we have a Democrat, you know, in the White House. So don't tell me we can't do this. And they got back to me in short order, uh, and he said, it's in. Now we have to extend it. That brings me to something else I wanted to ask you about, which is it felt like there was so much momentum. I mean, there was so much momentum in the in the fall and late last year for the Build Back Better Act. And I'm wondering what you feel went wrong or if you could go back and change the strategy, what would you do differently um, then? And how does that inform what you think should be done now? Well, look, I, I don't think it's about something that went wrong. We have very small margins in both the House and in the Senate. Let's, let's face it. Where are our Republican colleagues on that? So they're not there uh, for it. And, you know, we need 10 Republicans to say this is good stuff. This is going to help my constituents as well as, 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 as yours. So it's not wrong strategy. But what I would do, and I talked about this from the outside, if we can't do every program that we would like to do, I think we then talk about a fewer, uh, you know, programs, ones that have the, the kind of consequences uh, that a child tax credit does or what child care can do, et cetera. Uh, and let's focus on those as we, you know, move forward um, and then build on that as we go along and not try to do a little bit here or a little bit there. 
Looking forward, what's your hope for the future of the care economy? You know, the, the, the paradigm has been if you give all of the benefits and the tax cuts to the wealthiest and to the corporations, that that will make the economy grow. And if you demonize people who are struggling and make it difficult for them to be able to get ahead, that that's what our, 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 our public policy should be. That's where Paul Ryan was. That's where my Republican colleagues. And what we've seen with just the one program, the one program, the child tax credit, has turned that on its head. And what people are doing with that money and how they're taking care of their families and working at the same time. Wow. First and foremost, I am just a real fan of Representative Deloro. She is just amazing. And the way that she described the work of Congress, the potential of Congress, and the kind of change that can happen over the course of many, many years was really amazing and inspiring. And she's been working on this issue for so long one of the things that I really took away was just the the importance of the data. So I know before I spoke with Representative Deloro, we talked about this some, but the fact that there's been a six-month period now where studies were done, where there's real evidence that we can lift kid, a huge percentage of kids out of poverty and even impact their brain activity and like health more broadly is just something that's really, really struck me when she was talking. You know, this is a moment when we have to sort of decide what kind of country are we? We, this is not a case of something that's untested, that's experimental, where we don't know, you know, kind of what the effects will be. We know. We saw. And so it's just a matter of political will, holding our lawmakers to accountability on, to, to, pass legislation that we know will make a difference for families, that we know is widely popular with the American public, and, um, and, and making that kind of concerted effort to just say, this is what we care about and this is what we need to have happen. And yet, even in our conversation, I did notice that Representative DeLauro did mention inflation. And I do hear people more and more, like in my daily life, talk about how they can see inflation in their grocery bills and going to buy coffee and whatever else. And it's, I can see the tension between really wanting to get these things passed that are very popular and this sort of boogeyman in the room that is the fact that inflation has increased. How do we deal with that? Well, look, the causes of inflation are pretty complex and varied. And so we're still dealing with a lot of supply chain disruptions, which are contributing. There's you know, we're getting more and more evidence of how corporations are kind of controlling their pricing and exploiting their pricing in order to sort of make the most of this moment. So to say that we have inflation just because of increased demand is really not accurate. It's only part of the story. And then I think we also have to go back to what's the reality of families' lives? And let's go again to the most vulnerable families, the most economically insecure families, they too are facing increased costs at this moment. And so 
are we as a country going to help them? Child rearing is expensive for all of us. And for those at the margins, it is really, really scary. And this is a program, a policy that can provide really meaningful assistance to families, especially in a moment when when costs are rising. One question that I asked and I'm still sort of wondering about is how we should think about our timeline right now. So in some ways, thinking about Representative Delora's experience, she's been working on this issue for nearly two decades. It seems like progress can be very slow and still happen. And it also feels like we're in a moment where people are really paying attention to the caregiving economy and to potentially the expanded child tax credit. And we're about to reach midterm season. So it kind of also feels to me like it's now or never. Should we be thinking about this as something that needs to happen before November? Or is this something where perhaps progress will take longer than that and we'll have to work through the next election? I think it would be really advantageous for the administration and congressional Democrats to restore the expanded child tax credit. This was something concrete that people experienced in their pocketbooks. This was something that the administration could say they delivered for families who are struggling with costs at this moment, who are struggling with an economy that's still very much in flux. So I think there would be political benefit if we were able to deliver this. But look, policy change is you know, this is a long-term game. And so will it happen? I don't know. But the other thing that I'm heartened about is that even if we don't see the child tax credit expanded at the federal level between now and November, this issue of should we have an income floor for families? Do we Should we be providing direct support to families? This isn't going away. This was an issue in the 2020 presidential election We are seeing more and more states and localities start to experiment with direct cash benefits to families. So I think we will continue to see innovation. We will continue to see more evidence accumulate for its benefits. And sooner or later, hopefully our federal government will act. Next week on Women Belong in the House, we're taking a look at paid family leave. To dive deeper into the history of the caregiving crisis, tune in on Thursday for another episode of White Picket Fence. Women Belong in the House is a Wonder Media Network show created by me, Jenny Kaplan. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Maddie Foley, and Taylor Williamson. Original music by Miles Moran. Special thanks to Julie Kohler. 